Matthew was one of the people who followed Jesus from pretty much the beginning. And so it's very interesting. His account, all of their accounts highlight different things, which is also interesting because their unique human personalities come out in their writing. And so the, the Word of God is completely inspired. It's completely infallible, but it's coming through men and it's coming through their perception on a situation. And what's fascinating is that they highlight different things that paints a bigger picture. And so Matthew, his name, uh, he was actually Levi, and he was a tax collector. And so before Jesus had called him, he was a tax collector. What does that mean? That means that he was a crook and he made a living extorting his own people. Literally, he would charge his own people more taxes than Rome would charge so that he could make a living. So this guy was a crook and he made a living extorting his own people who were oppressed by Rome. So that means that Levi did not have that many friends, <laughs> at least not that were Jewish, right? So he had a very interesting name. Uh, he did not live up to his his, his, his name because Levi was was the people, you know, the Levites worked in the temple in the house of God. And so he did the very opposite of work for God. He worked for a government that was actually extorting God's chosen people. And so it's a very, very interesting thing how that God would then turn this situation and use Matthew to give the people of God the most valuable thing that they could receive, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew's name actually means gift from Jehovah. So someone who used to be a crook, who used to be a thief, God transformed that person and made that person a gift. So someone who used to steal and used to take from God's people then gave to God's people the very thing that money can't buy. And so there was a major transformation that took place in this guy's life. And so as we read his narrative of what has happened in the resurrection and what happened after that and through that and what it means, it's very interesting because he's going to give us a perspective on some of the events that happened after Jesus rose from the dead that you're not going to see in any other gospel. There is a lens that is unique to Matthew and he's looking through that lens at an historical event that truly did happen. And and he gives us details in, in his account that's very interesting um, because uh, you'll see in a minute, but but I just want us to, as we go through Matthew 28, let's not blow through it and not listen to what's being said because sometimes we can read something so fast to try to get our Bible routine for the day done and over with. I read two chapters, I'm done tonight, that we miss the actual details and we miss the treasure of what's being spoken if we go over it too fast. So let's go through it slowly. Matthew 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary uh, went to see the sepulchre or, or the tomb. At two, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now the Greek language is really interesting because um, the way it said the word descended is not really the word descended. It's almost like the word fall. And so basically the, the Greek picture of what's happening is not just that an angel 
is coming from an aerial view. It's not like he's just, you know, falling out of like what we would call the sky, right? Although it was up, it basically what happened is the angel didn't just fall from the sky onto the earth. It was the angel basically fell out of eternity and into time and space. Really interesting the way, the picture that the language here paints. Now, uh, so the angel of the Lord, think, think of this. He comes out of eternity. He comes into time and space. He rolls a humongous, humongous stone all by himself. One angel, right? He rolls this huge stone away and then he sits on it. It's almost like the angel has a personality. It's almost, and, and not, I'm not saying he does, but it's just very interesting. The angel is not standing by it, like, at attention, like, you know, I'm an angel, I'm uptight. The angel sits on the stone. Bam, he's just up there. Three, his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment was as white as snow, and for fear... Of him, the guards, the keepers, did shake and become as dead man. Now, who's shaking? Let, let me explain. These are the most trained soldiers on the planet. These, this army is ruling all of the known world. This is not like some little church boy is shaking. This is not like that. This is like two... Navy SEALs, United States Marine Corps, people trying to kill, are shaking like dead men. These guys are trained killers. They are the most brutal army on the face of the planet. Their shoes have spikes under them because they just walk and kill and trample people. These people are ruthless. They're killing the Son of God and making jokes about it and gambling for, his, for his, his garments. These are ruthless, evil men who are not afraid. The angel falls out of eternity, opens the tomb, sits on it, and they're shaking like dead men. Sometimes we have to put it in context. These are trained killers who are terrified of the angel of the Lord. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said. What does the angel put attention on? The word of God. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold he goes before you into Galilee therefore shall you see him lo I have told you and after they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word or announcement as they went to tell him, his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. All hail, the King James says, but it's actually like, be happy. <laughs> and they came and worshipped him by his feet. Then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid. 
Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. Now, here's the thing. The disciples, the women rather, where do they encounter Jesus? They encounter Jesus as they obey the voice of the angel of the Lord. So where is the place where we encounter God? We encounter God as we obey God. That's important to realize because where do you encounter God? Where do you have an encounter with Jesus as you pursue his word, as you obey him? See, the angel is a messenger. The angel is carrying a message from God. The angel is declaring what Jesus will do, where Jesus will go, and he's reminding them of that Jesus said this, and he's going to be in Galilee. Now, the name Galilee is interesting because it literally means circle of the heathen. It's very interesting that he did not go to Jerusalem immediately. Anyway. So, as they go to, to tell the disciples, they encounter Jesus himself. He tells them, don't be afraid, be happy, like this is a time, this is exciting, right? Now, in verse 11, now when they were coming, behold, some of the watch, or the guard, the Romans, came into the city and showed unto the priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders... And had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say you, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ear, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now the word world there is not the word world cosmos as we know the world. It's actually the word aeon, which is the word age. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you until the end of the age. So he's saying, your world is going to fall apart, but I'm going to be with you through everything falling apart. That's good news. Imagine if the Lord told you your whole life, your whole family, and your whole future, and your whole city, and your whole nation is going to fall apart, but I'm going to be with you. So he's telling them they have a mission, they have an assignment, things are going to happen, things are going to unravel, but I'm going to be with you. 
Now, I want you to just put yourself in their shoes because Jesus lay dead in a grave three days. They gave everything. They left their families, their friends, their old uh, everything to follow him. He says, where I'm going, you can't come. He, he, the whole city worships him. He, he, he's, a, he's a taxpaying uh, Jew, even though he wasn't a citizen. He did not get a fair trial. He was taken at night. He was unjustly crucified. And now he's, he's dead, and your whole world is shattered. Everything that you put your hopes in, everything you put your dreams in, everything you know you were all in on, seemed for three days like a total sham. And, and I'm going to tell you, there's times in life and in faith where your sacrifice seems irrelevant, where what you believe seems irrelevant. What you've given everything for seems like it's not worth it. There, there is a, a period of time where those three days or that little bit of time where, where everything you've done and everything you've given it for and everything you've put into it seems as if it's worthless and irrelevant. But hang in there. Just don't quit. Just, just hang in there. So what happens is, as we go back to the beginning, it's the Sabbath day. And the angel of the Lord falls out of eternity into the earth, into the, into the earth realm, and he, he rolls back the stone. And what's critical, what's powerful to understand is the body of Christ is not there. What does that show us? That shows us several things. It shows us that the resurrected body of the Lord is able to move through things. So that means that the natural created order, the matter that's on this planet, matter, you know, like what walls are made of, it cannot stop Jesus. In the scripture, the doors were being shut, Jesus appeared in the midst of them. Right? Jesus is, you know, there's a storm, the disciples are going crazy, they're all bent out of shape, Jesus comes walking on the water. What does he do? He transcends the law of gravity. He is transcendent. What does that mean? He's above all. There's nothing that can stop him. So here you have a stone that is humongous and that is, that is in place, but his body is not there. So if death couldn't hold him, that stone couldn't keep him from walking out of that grave. You have to understand, the message of the kingdom of God is the message of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, God's Son. There is not one variable, there is not one circumstance, there is nothing that God cannot do, except lie. Which means, he can be trusted. And so now you see, the angel of the Lord comes from heaven, opens this home, and then says to the, to the women, look, he's not there. Look. The angel of the Lord knew why they were there, who they were looking for, and everything that was going on. And the angel of the Lord opened the tomb and allowed them to see, truly, he's not there. See, this is important to, to really see because this further validates the historic events that we actually celebrate today. And this is, this is what's bizarre about it is that every other religion is based on a dead person. Every other religion is based upon a dead person whose tomb, and they're rotting in their tomb. They've already rotted. Their flesh has already rotted. Muhammad, Harry Kirsna, all the other false religions, Joseph Smith, all of those false religions are based upon dead men. 
Buddha, all of those religions, all of the false religions are based upon dead men. The only thing that separates us from a false religion is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, our faith is not built on what we do. All the other religions try to please God, try to make sacrifices, try to fly planes into buildings, try to meditate their way into it, try to walk upstairs on their knees to do it, try to walk on hot coals to do it, try to give sacrificially to the poor to do it, try to take a vow of celibacy and live in a, as a monk to do it. We don't do that. Jesus did it. See, the, the, every other religion is, what they're trying to do is they're trying to please or appease God but Jesus did that for us. So you have to understand that today is a day that separates the true God from false gods. Today is a, is a, is a historical line of demarcation. Now let me think of this. In Syria, where ISIS is killing people, all these people are going mad and killing people. Before all this, Syria, an Islamic nation, a Muslim nation, literally gave Christians three days off for Easter. Because of the historical accuracy and veracity of the scriptures and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is historically acknowledged as a fact. His body is nowhere to be found. So I want you to just think that history is behind this. This is not just some, some weird idea that makes us feel better about ourselves. This is not just something, okay, maybe I can get free, help my marriage and stuff. Let me lean on Jesus. No, no, no. This is historically true. Historically true. All right. Now. Let's see. I want you to see from Levi, from, from Matthew's eyes. What is Matthew? Matthew is a crook. What is Matthew going to highlight that no one else is going to highlight? Matthew is going to highlight the corruption of the temple. Matthew is going to highlight the corruption of the religious system of his day. Matthew is going to highlight the bribery and the payoff that they received from the temple. Watch this. This is there's something there's something here. 12. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. So what does that mean? The Roman soldiers went to the elders or to the Sanhedrin. That was the religious system of people who had Jesus crucified. They turned Jesus over to Rome. Because the Sanhedrin did not kill and did not crucify, Rome did. So they said, this guy is basically uh, leading a revolt and he's going to cause a big problem, so just kill him now. And they did it secretively, they manipulated the crowd, it was very underhanded, it was very unjust. That's why Pilate said, I'm going to wash my hands from this because this guy is not guilty. And if he would have been guilty, he couldn't have been our savior, right? So he had to be innocent and it had to go down this way. And so the guys who made this thing happen, the Roman soldiers go to them and say, listen, I'm going to tell you what happened. An angel came, rolled away a stone, his body was not there. This is what happened. This is real. <laughs> this is not like a Christian account of what happened. This is a historical event of what happened based on Roman soldiers. 
So this is not someone coming from a Christian worldview who's saying, oh, this should have happened. This was prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures to happen. This was unbelieving pagan murderers who killed people for a living saying, guys, what, you don't understand what happened. An angel fell out of the sky, rolled away the tomb. We shook like dead men and his body was not there. His body is not there. I mean, this is what happened. I mean, I'm stressing this because this is historical fact. This isn't a feeling. This isn't like, this is what we believe. This happened. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. <laughs> so, so, so this is what's happening. So, and here's what the religious people do. They, they give the soldiers a large sum of money to be quiet. Now, the word large, oh man, the word large in Greek here, it means much, it means great, it means the word content, and it also means the word security. Security. The religious system said, let me give you a great large sum of money, something that you'll be content with, something that will make you secure. The lie... That money will make you secure is the very thing that the resurrection of Jesus exposes. True security is only found in the resurrection, not in money. If I just had a little bit more money, I would feel secure. This is what the devil offers them to shut up. Money. Jesus was betrayed for money. See, finances and money is what wars against kingdom purpose. So the question becomes, money is not bad. The question is, will you serve God or will you compromise your values for money? See, this here is really, really deep because of what is being said and what is happening. Really deep. Let me give you a large sum of money and it will shut you up. Why is it that a crook, someone who is transformed, someone who used to extort God's people, someone who is like a, you know, a racketeer kind of a guy, someone like that. Are you getting the picture of what Matthew used to be? Why is it that as he looks at the resurrection, this is what he says and this is what he sees? Sometimes it's very interesting because many of us interpret reality through our past. And sometimes God can actually redeem your past so that you can actually see things that other people can't see. It's like this. I may be somewhere and I may see guys shake hands. My wife sees two guys shaking hands. I see a drug deal. She doesn't see that. Or I see three guys walking with a girl, and people don't know what's happening, but I know what, what, what may be about to happen. Why? Because you interpret things through the lens of what you've been through, of what you've seen. So Matthew's eyes are trained to see a crook because he used to be one. His eyes are trained to see corruption because he used to be a part of it. He used to have his hand in it. All right? So now he's, he's telling the story of the resurrection, and he's basically saying evil 
Wicked men tried to suppress the truth by paying off people who saw a valid account of that truth. And you need to know that the truth was trying to be silenced by religious people. And I, here, let me translate this into today. We have a problem, something in our life that is out of control, something that is spinning out of control. We have things going on in our life that we don't like. We have things. Ha what, do we, what is our natural inclination? Our natural inclination is to throw money at something we can't control. Our natural inclination is to throw money at a problem, and money doesn't solve that problem. I can tell you that I know this from working in the mission field and being in the nations. You have compassion. You see how much people are struggling. And you go and you throw money at a problem and it just makes the problem bigger and it just makes the problem worse. Until you find the root of the problem, you're not going to deal with the actual problem. And this is the problem with American medicine. We medicate symptoms. We do not medicate the problem. That's why we live in a medicated society. Right? And if you need medication, if you're unbalanced, I'm not making fun of that. You know, there, that's, there's nothing wrong with medicine. But I'm saying medicating a symptom does not bring help or change. It just keeps someone in bondage. And so anyway, getting back to the story here, what happened was they were paid off to be quiet. Paid off to be quiet. And... What's profound, at in, in least in my perception of this story, is that here you have religious people who crucified Jesus, and now they're having to pay off other people to be quiet because of the validity of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So... We have to realize that this is a powerful truth in that just just let's just stop, right? Let's bring this into our culture. America is a powerful country, the most powerful country on the face of the earth. We may have had a bad eight years, but let, let me don't get it twisted. America is the most powerful country on the face of the planet right now. Its power is dwindling, its influence is dwindling in some areas, but the reality is America is, is a powerful place. So George Bush said, we're going to get these terrorists, we're going to get bin Laden, we're going to do... And guess what? Someone who didn't even agree with him, didn't even like him, and didn't agree with his worldview, helped authorize bin Laden to be destroyed, and Obama was a part of that and politicized it, and that's how he was elected a second time. But anyway, he, they got the job done. They said they were going to get him, and they got him. Now, you're a conspiracy theory person, and you don't think they got him, but for the rest of us, we'll, we'll agree with that he's, he's dead, right? And the, the problem is that you can't kill an ideology. So whether he's dead or not really doesn't matter because the idea is not dead, right? So... Anyway, but the, the more of the story is, the most powerful government on the face of the planet could not get rid of Jesus, stop Jesus, or silence Jesus. All they could do was help Jesus fulfill his ultimate mission, which is to die and be the savior of the world and rise on the third day. And the guards that killed him couldn't stop the stone from being rolled away, couldn't stop him from being risen from the dead. And the bribery and, and the corruption and the fear and the, all of those things, the priesthood and those 
those people who paid to silence the truth cannot silence the truth. The kingdom of God is here to stay. The kingdom of God is only increasing. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. The kingdom of God is unshakable and indestructible. Bottom line, the purposes of God will not be stopped. Check it out. The most powerful government on the face of the planet could not hold Jesus from the grave. Could not. What does that mean? Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. The very statement that Jesus is Lord is a political statement. It's not simply a religious statement. It's a statement that challenges everything. It's a statement that challenges religious pride, national pride, the love of money, the lust for power. It challenges everything to its very core and shakes everything down and up and flips everything upside down and says that a Jewish man from Palestine, from Nazarene, who was born from a virgin, that's impossible, who lived a sinless life, that's impossible, was crucified unjustly, although he paid taxes and did not receive a fair trial and was put in the tomb of a rich man and fulfilled every messianic prophecy, more than 300 of them, and he rose from the dead on the third day and he is the son of the living God and his kingdom knows no end and it cannot be stopped and it's here to stay. That So now, what does that mean to us, right? Jesus says to them after overcoming death, all authority is given to me where? In heaven and on earth. Where? In heaven and on earth. So that means there is a new Lord. The risen Christ is now not only the Lord of heaven, but he manifested his lordship through dying and through rising, through living a sinless life, through fulfilling the scriptures, and now he is the Lord of earth. In other words, there's a new sheriff in town. You ever see an old western movie? Guy comes in, guns blazing. Howdy, partner. There's a new sheriff in town. That's what Jesus is saying. Partner, there's a new sheriff in town. I overcame death, right? And he says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, teaching all nations, discipling all nations, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So now, they are teaching people groups and different ethnic groups and different religions and different tribes and different tongues to obey Jesus and why they should obey Jesus and what that means. Now, let's go to Romans 1.4. Watch this. Romans 1, we'll start in uh, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his holy prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, his son, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Bless you. And declared to be the Son of God with power according 
to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. For his name. Okay. Now, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with dunamis, with power, by the Spirit of holiness that rose him and raised him from the dead. Right? Now, the word that he was declared, this is a powerful word, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. The word declared is the word horizon. Horizon. What does that mean? What is a horizon? If you look out into a sunset, if you look out into a horizon, as far as your eye can see, if you, especially if you stand on a beach, and if you look out into the sea, if you look out into the horizon, let's say you're on a mountain, if you look out as far as your eyes can see, a horizon is where heaven and earth meet. God prophesied through his prophets, according to the scriptures, that there is a place where heaven and earth meet, and it's not in the temple in Jerusalem, it's in God's son, Jesus Christ. See, before this, heaven and earth were met in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place, in the city of David, in the city of God, in Jerusalem, in the temple, behind the veil. That's where heaven and earth met. But now, there's a new horizon. The new horizon is in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Heaven and earth meet in Jesus Christ, God's Son. So there's a new, there's a new uh, focus. There's a new picture. There's, a new, there's something new that we're looking at, that we're walking after, that we're pursuing. Something that is at the very center of our vision. Something that deals with as far as our eyes can see. Something that is a bigger picture than a small little place. Just for a few bunch of people. Something bigger. There's a new horizon. Now, going back to Matthew. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Heaven and earth meet in the Son of God. He taught us to pray. His kingdom come where? On earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus came, established his kingdom, brought heaven to earth, set a new horizon for us, gave us a new value system, a new culture, a new language, new purposes, and said... In the context and in light of him being raised from the dead, in light of him being the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, in light of him fulfilling the law, in light of him living a perfect life, in light of him dying for our sins, saving us from our sins, loving us in our sins, breaking the power of sin, destroying the power of death, and the one who had the authority, uh, had the power of death through dying and through rising. He's released a whole new culture and a whole new reality in the earth called the kingdom of heaven. 
and we feel as if one day we'll die and we'll go to heaven, but really what's happening is that heaven and earth are becoming one in Jesus, and there will be a final consumption of that day when he breaks the sky, and when we put on immortality, and when we receive a new body, and we will dwell on the earth, and we will rule on the earth, so we have this idea that we're going to float away in heaven somewhere on a cloud, which is a pagan idea, not a Hebrew idea, not a biblical idea. Mythology, it's really a bad Greek idea, really. Usually they always really corrupt everyone. So, anyway, what's happening is this. There's a new culture, a new value system, and a new kingdom, and it's here on the earth. The question becomes, in light of the resurrection, do we partner with this new kingdom, with this new reality, or... Do we just continue to live our lives with a belief in Jesus, but like, like Jesus is cool, but we'll leave Jesus for Sunday. Or Jesus is, is cool, we'll drop a little money in the bucket, but we won't fully change our lives. Jesus is cool, but I still really want to do what I want to do. You know, or, or, or do we catch a vision of a new horizon? A new place where heaven and earth meet in the person of God's Son who establishes a whole new order. That is the question that we're going to have to ask ourselves because the question really is not just that, the, the reality is not that, it's not just that Jesus died and rose. That's awesome and it's true. But because the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. Good news means in light of something that happened, something will happen, and something is happening, right? So let's say Ralph comes to me and Ralph says, I've got a million dollar check for you. So in light of Ralph having a million dollar check for Adam, Adam goes to Ralph's bank with Ralph, right? Now Adam has Ralph's million dollars that he willingly is giving to Adam. So in light of this check from Ralph, now... My reality is different in how I behave and where I live and what I drive has now changed because something Ralph has freely given me. So basically, because Jesus has died for us, has lived for us, has set an example, because the reality of that is historically true, because the truth of that is seen when people's lives are changed and transformed, which continues to bear witness of the resurrection, when signs and wonders happens, when healings break out, that's a witness of the resurrection. So because something has happened, something is happening, and something will happen, right? So the gospel is not just good advice, don't smoke, don't drink, behave. That's good advice, and, and good advice is better than bad advice. But the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. That's different. Now, let me, let me go to the last scripture. Let's go to First uh, Peter 1, and then we'll be finished. Uh, We'll start in verse 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if you be in heaviness through manifold or many temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it were tried by fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So basically... God is abundant in mercy. That means he's overflowing with mercy. It means that his desire is to be merciful. His propensity is toward mercy. He's good. Mercy says you're not going to get what you deserve. That's good, right? Now, we've been begotten or born into a lively hope, a living hope, a living expectation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that means, for, for those of you who are parents, when, when your wife or when a woman gives birth, they come out of the womb, out of a warm you know, place, into a cold, hard reality. The temperature is different, you know, they smack them, cut them, you know, clean them, they're, you know, they're like really disturbed because they were just in this really warm, custom fit place just for them. And then they come into this harsh reality and then they're getting washed, sprayed, cut, measured, you know, as, you know, all these things are happening and they were just in this place designed just for them and now they're in a place that is not designed for them in that same sense, right? It's not as customized, right? So what happens is there's like almost like a rude awakening in in a sense that is not really that positive and that's why they scream and cry because they're not used to what's going on. And we know that it's for their benefit. They're getting clean and cared for. But when you're born again, you are born into an, an environment of hope. So... When you come through the womb of God into the kingdom of God, when you come into the kingdom, right? When you're born again, when, you're, when your old nature dies and when you say, you know, I'm now dead and I'm now alive in Jesus. And so who I used to be is not who I am. And what I used to want is not what I want. And what I used to do is not what I do. I'm born into a living Hope, a living expectation. In other words, what I'm expecting is different than what I used to expect. This is, this is a game changer. If you have a revelation of this, it changes your perception of the future. In light of what Jesus has done, something is happening and something will happen. So you're born unto a living hope. In other words, how you see the future is radically different from how you used to view the future. Because God is abundant in mercy. So by God not giving us what we deserve, 
being born into a living hope, we have a different perspective, a different desire, and a different perception of tomorrow. So that means hope and faith. Faith is really for now. Hope is really for later. Hope is really what am I expecting as a result of what I'm believing or what I'm doing. What do I really believe about tomorrow? Who do I believe you're becoming? Where do I believe you're going? What do I believe God has for you? What do I believe God has for me? It has to affect how we see the future, okay? So we've been born into this living hope. And now we're going to receive an inheritance. Do you work for an inheritance? And the inheritance is incorruptible. What does that mean? It means the problem with things on this planet are that they, they rust, they get we look at us, we're like, you know, things start to sag. We we you know, we don't have our eyes, you know, get little rings around them. We didn't have that before. Things start to change, hair starts falling out, we lose things, right? He's saying there is a place where decay doesn't exist. So you have an inheritance in a place where decay doesn't exist, where uh, things are not defiled. Let me give you a picture. You get a nice outfit. It's nice. You go out to eat, and you stain a really expensive shirt, and you just bought it. Have you ever done that? Anyone but me? (laughs) You're not happy because now it's spoiled and soiled. You have an inheritance in a place where things are, there there is no accidents. There is no spoiling. There is no corruption. There is no decay. Undefiled that doesn't fade away, right? What, What do precious, what's the difference between a precious metal, right? Just think with me. With a precious metal, let's say a watch, it's precious metal, stainless steel, gold, white gold, something that is precious metal versus something that's cheap. Something that is cheap with this color faster. Something that is cheap will have more signs of being worn than something that is not cheap. So he's saying here that you have something that is priceless, which does not decay, which cannot be earned, and it's stored in heaven for you. It's stored in eternity. It's stored in a place that is timeless, in a place that is forever. So it doesn't fade away. It doesn't get spoiled. There's no accidents. Things don't get spilled on it. It's undefiled. And then he goes back to reality. So he goes, a living hope, the way you see the future. And then he says, inheritance in eternity. And then he goes back down to reality. And he says this, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. What does that mean? I don't keep myself. God keeps me. What does that mean? It means that kept, it means guarded. It actually has a militaristic word used here in the Greek, which means a garrison around. So what does that mean? That means God says, yo, this is my boy. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set up shop around him, and I'm going to literally fortify his zone. I'm going to lock his spot down, and nobody's going to be able to get in, and nobody's going to be out, and the power of God, my power, my power is going to keep him. My power, not Adam's power, 
God's power is the keeping power that saves me. Not your willpower, God's power. Now here's the catch though. Here, there's, one, here, there's one problem. The problem is that if you want to climb out, you can. God is not a controller. God is not going to control you. God is not going to put you on a chain and chain you to the wall and say, you can't go anywhere. He's going to secure you. He's going to lock it down. He's going to fortify you. He's going to keep you by his power, but he won't control you. If you say, I don't want to be kept. I don't want to be fortified. I don't want to be protected. I want to do what I want to do. He goes, all right. It's not what I want for you. But all right. So that's why when people go, do you believe you can lose your salvation? Salvation isn't like a coin that you just lose. If you reject salvation, you really rejected salvation. It's not something that you just threw away, you left at the park like a phone. If you reject God, you do it aggressively on purpose and over the course of a long period of time because God is very patient and very long-suffering and God will continue to reach out to you. He will continue to reach down to you. He will continue to send people to you. He will continue to speak to you. He will continue to blow the whistle. You're going the wrong way. Life will continue to tell you, don't do that. It's not going to end well. So this thing of losing your salvation is not the question. Can salvation be neglected? Can God be rejected? Jesus was crucified. So obviously God can be rejected. So it's important to realize that when you have real faith comes real temptations, real trials, real hardships. It's not like, oh, I have faith. Everything's good. No, it's like, oh, you got faith? Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. You're a fighter? Oh, all right. You, you fight? You, you, you're a boxer? All right. Boom. You're okay. You, you know, you, oh, so you're, 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 you know, you're tough? All right. Bam. Yo, you got belief? Good. I'm going to challenge that belief. Oh, you're, you play ball? Let's play ball. Right? So when you declare, I have faith, the devil goes, oh, word? Okay. That's cool. I'm going to throw some unbelief at you. I'm going to throw some temptation at you. I'm going to throw things at you that are appealing to you. I'm going to see how you, how, you, how you handle that. And this is what God is doing in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of our problems, in the midst of the times where we feel as if we want to quit, where it's easy to quit. We feel like, you know what? Things are not really working out the way I intended. Things are not moving at the speed that I intended. People are not changing at the, at the way I intended. I am not developing as I intended. I just feel like quitting. You know, many of us have felt that way where we just feel like this sucks, it's not worth it, it's not working out, why stick it out? But here's the thing, when you feel that, when you're going through like what feels as if you're being pressed, what feels as if your life is hemming you up, so to speak, when you feel that way, what's happening is your faith is passing through fire so that God can produce something in your life that is priceless. See, when faith passes through fire, there's three things that it produces. Praise, honor, and glory. 
Those are three things the Revelation says that Jesus is worthy of. So what that means is when my faith in Jesus is tested by circumstances in my life that are contrary to faith, God says that you're, you're going to be healed, but I'm sick. God says that you're going to be the head and not the tail, but I'm broke. God says you're going to live and not die, and my wife has a miscarriage. God says that I have land for you, but I live in a basement. And so when all of these things come against you and your faith is tested, when your faith passed through the test, when you say, I refuse not to believe, I refuse to believe my circumstances over what God said. I acknowledge the reality of those circumstances, but faith transcends that, and I believe in a bigger and a better promise than what I'm currently existing in now. When your faith passes through those fires, through the file of temptation, through the trials of faith, through people questioning you at work and saying, if Jesus is real, what about this? And you have no answer for them, but you keep believing. When your faith passes through fire, it is purified. It is purified. The more you put fire on precious metal, the more valuable the precious metal becomes. That's why 24 karat gold is more expensive than 18 karat gold. Why? Because it's purer. The purer it is, the more of a reflection you get from it. See, in those days, there's a scripture that says, by gold, Jesus says this, tried in the fire. And what they would do with gold in, in, in the Bible days is they would take gold and put it in fire and beat it and beat it and beat it thin, beat it and beat it, and then buff it, and it would be for rich people... As a mirror. When God is saying, buy gold tried in a fire, he's saying that so that he gets his reflection in you. So that when you look in the mirror, he sees him. When you look in the mirror, you see him. See, the purifying of your faith is to produce something that Jesus is worthy of. So God is saying, look, I'm going to let your faith be tested by fire so that you have something to contribute and something to give my son that he's worthy of. It would be like a broke person going to someone's wedding and, and someone saying, listen, I know you don't have money to give to the people at the wedding, but I want to help you so you don't feel awkward at this event, right? You know what I'm saying? You don't want to go to a wedding and not give people something. I mean, unless you do, maybe. But, I, you know, most of us would like to really, you know, bam, you know, many of us were, are, are people who, don't, back in the day, we didn't mind spending, so now we don't mind giving. We just, it's natural to us to just bang, right? And so, Father is saying, listen, you're invited to a wedding. You're invited to a wedding. But when you come to this wedding, not only do I want to give you a wedding garment, not only do I want you to have a seat at the table, I want you to drop something in the bucket. I want you to be able to be a contributor. God, in his humility, it's, it's stunning how he allows dust creatures with different pigments of skin, dust to contribute to his kingdom who has no needs or no end. God needs my tithe like a hole in the head. God needs our money, not at all. We need money to pay the rent, yeah, but God does not need anything. Don't get it twisted. So God allows us to contribute 
to a kingdom that has no need and a kingdom that has no end. So let me just say this. When your faith is going through fire, God is producing something in you that is priceless, that is worthy of his son Jesus. Praise, honor, and glory. Let me, let me give you how, how, those, how that happens. Praise, praise is what God is worthy of. Praise is the declaration of who God is. Glory, glory is the environment, it's the atmosphere that God dwells in. It's an environment where everything grows. Honor is dignity and value. So when you're getting rejected, when you're getting rejected, God is giving you honor. When you're going through the rejection because of your faith, God is giving you honor that you might give back to Jesus. When people are not, when people, when, when, when no one is singing your praises, when you're doing things that no one sees and you're doing it strictly for the honor of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, because you know he's looking, you are acquiring something that you can then present to Jesus. When, when you are in hostile environments where people are not treating you well and you respond correctly, your faith is producing honor that you can then give to Jesus. So I want to encourage you in the midst of any struggle that you may be feeling like you're going through or things that when things are contrary to faith, it's because God is producing something in you that money can't buy. And he's allowing you to give into his kingdom that has no end. Let's run through one last scripture and then we're done. I said that last time, but I really mean it this time. Revelation chapter 1. I know for some it's a scary book. But Revelation 1 is critical. And uh, here, is, here, is, here it is, verse 5. Um, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him... Here it is, that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood and made us kings and priests unto God, his father, be glory and dominion forever and ever. So the blood of Jesus has washed us because he loved us and it has made us kings and priests. So when you're born again, you are born into a living hope where you are washed and forgiven of your sins. Your sins and what you've done no longer defines you. Now you are made kings and priests. Now, this is written to people who understood that priests and kings could only be priests and kings through bloodline. Blood. Only way you're a priest or a king when this was written is through blood. You were either born with the right blood or you were not. So you're not going to become a priest by going to Bible school and carrying someone's briefcase. That's not happening. You're either in or you're out. You're either born in the right family or you weren't. So Jesus, so John is saying, you are born into the right family. You have been loved, you have been washed, and you have been made. Kings and priests. What does that mean? Kings have influence upon the earth. Priests have influence in the heavens. God is saying, where heaven and earth meet in Jesus, you have been made, first of all, forgiven. Second, you've been made king and a priest. 
And this is thing, this thing is a forever thing. This is not a contingent on you thing. This is a forever type of thing that you were born into, that you inherited by bloodline because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus giving his blood, taking our place, being our substitution, and then rising again. So now there's a kingdom that is here now with a different set of values. You were born into a living hope. You have a different expectation about the future. So because Jesus died and because Jesus rose, he gave birth to a new reality and a new dimension on the earth that see the future differently, which means we live differently in the present in light of the past because of that Jesus died and that Jesus rose. So this is not disconnected from the prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures to what Jesus came and fulfilled. This is the further consummation of the purposes, the redemptive purposes of God for planet earth made possible through Jesus Christ, but promised to Abraham. So this is something that we are a part of something that is very, very old, but it's very, very new. It's really mostly not really understood. Most people hear, Jesus died, you're forgiven, one day you'll go to heaven. They don't hear, no, Jesus gave birth to a whole new race of people and established a whole new culture and a whole new language and a whole new way of living here and now. And in light of that, things are changing, things have changed, and things will continue to change. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We don't see that. We see something different. We see the world is just getting worse. This is all signs of the end. Oh my God. But let me explain to you. When Jesus came out of the grave, something radically, radically, radically different than we ever thought is happening. It's in motion can't be stopped. Let me give you what Jesus, his very best friend, said about it. This is, this is a simple... Um, a simple a, a simple yet very profound reality John 2 verse 8 again a new commandment I write unto you which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth King James. Why do I read the King James? That's a second tense of a word. Shineth. What does that mean? It means it keeps shining. Not just shine. It keeps shining. It's a second tense of a word. We don't have that in our English language. A second tense means it's a continuum. It keeps doing it. it keeps perpetually. Right? So the darkness is past. And the true light now shines. It keeps shining. It's shining. But you hear people say, it's only getting darker and darker. That's just not what the Bible says. <laughs> so eventually, we're going to have to believe what the Bible says. And now, step into us being light. What does light mean? Light exposes darkness. Light confronts darkness. Light challenges darkness. But you know what light really does? It provides Vision for people who can't see otherwise. For people who are stumbling along 
It gives them hope and allows them to see. Light doesn't shine at the darkness, it shines in the darkness. Light expels darkness. Darkness. 